Hello and welcome to the Athlete Plus podcast. My name is George Cunningham and our guest today is Linda Flanagan. As some background, Linda Flanagan is a freelance journalist, researcher, and former cross-country and track coach. A graduate of Lehigh University, Flanagan holds a master's degree from Oxford University and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and was an analyst for the National Security Program at Harvard University. She's a founding board member of the New York chapter of the Positive Coaching Alliance and a 2020-2021 advisory group member for the Aspen Institute's Reimagining School Sports Initiative. Her writing on sports has appeared in The Atlantic, Runner's World, and on NPR's education site, MindShift, where she is a regular contributor. She's also author of a new book, Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids' Sports and Why It Matters. And finally, she's a mother of three and a lifelong athlete and lives in New Jersey. So welcome to the show and to the University of Florida. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, as your bio suggests, you've uh, led quite an interesting life. (laughs) I'd like to touch on different aspects throughout our conversation. Uh, But perhaps start with your identity as a lifelong athlete. So if you could tell me some more about that and including what you played and how active you are now. Sure. Well, I'm one of five. So I'm the youngest in a family of five. And so I played a lot with my older sister, mainly. Um, We played softball together very organically out in the front yard. And I then played as soon as I could organized sports, which at the time was about sixth grade. I played in a local team. Also, because I was always into running and just moving around, I took up tennis and my mother sort of browbeat us into it. And by the time I got to high school, I played for the tennis team and the softball team shortstop. And I moved all the way up to first singles by my senior year, but then I retired because I had such a disastrous season. And throughout, I've, as I said, I've been a runner and I started really kind of running more seriously when I got to college and play, uh, ran for my college team. Though it was after the passage of Title IX, we didn't have a women's team. So my fr- a friend and I lobbied the administration and had uh, the school start a women's team, commensurate with a men's team. So by the time I left, it was kind of in good, in good shape. And I, so I ran for my college those four years and then continued running when I was at Oxford and I'm running today. So 20 miles a week, not what I used to do, but it's been a big part of my life. Wonderful. And I'm going to add a little something from what I learned earlier in speaking with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Linda says she's a runner, almost like a casual runner, (laughs) but not a casual runner. You, can you tell us more about your marathon competitive running? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, it's interesting, like unlike many young people today, I really started my serious running after college. And I joined a, a running team in Boston where I was living. And then I really found out that I was not bad. And so started competing and I got so I could, you know, my achievements were I was able to run the mile in 456 and 10 miles in under an hour. And my, the the peak was a, my marathon, which was, I think, my last major race. And it was a 249 marathon. That's so, moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I, I shared earlier that I had run one half marathon and knowing my time for the half marathon and then your time for the full, <laughs> and they're not too <laughs> terribly different. So hats off to you. Well, thank you. 
You're also a former cross-country and track coach. What prompted you to start coaching? Well, it's interesting. I hadn't, it it wasn't something that occurred to me. It was sort of by accident almost. Um, I was in my kitchen giving my kids breakfast or whatever when they were young. My youngest was in kindergarten and I got a phone call and it was from a, a man I didn't know in town, but he somehow knew of me and he's very nice and friendly. And he was the cross country coach at a local school. And he said, I heard you're a runner and that you might be good working with kids. Would you like to be the coach at this school? So he said, I would be there to help. And, you know, if you need it. And I said, oh, so I'll be the queen and you'll be the prime minister. And he said, no, you know, I would be the prime minister. I would call the shots. So I took it up and I then I didn't stop for 17 years because I, again, it was by accident, but it also made a lot of sense. And I really enjoyed working with kids, with teenagers. I think they're an unfairly maligned population. They were just uh, refreshing and fun. And I always looked forward to practice. Well, that's good. Yeah. 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 The, uh, so your book, Take Back the Game, focuses on youth sports. Mm-hmm. And as I read through the book, I gathered that your experiences as a coach and your experiences as a parent of at least one child who participated in youth sports maybe served as a genesis or impetus Mm -hmm. for the book. Is that right? That's right. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, it was actually three things that prompted it. One was my own experience with sports and how, how vital they were to my life and central to my life still even. And I felt have done so much for me. So, you know, I appreciate what sports can do. And then seeing it as a parent and not only kind of falling into some of the traps that are very common for parents, which is to get a little caught up in it and to elevate its importance in your own life. I also saw with my son just some of the out of control nature of the, you know, there's stories all the time about crazy things parents do. And I think anyone who's been on the sidelines knows what that's like. And so I witnessed that and didn't didn't enjoy that. And in particular, I was troubled by how different it was from the way my parents viewed my sports, which was have fun, good luck out there. And as opposed to coaching and standing and, you know, pacing around the field, you know, pulling hair out because I wasn't playing properly. There was just a very different approach to sports among kids of my children's generation. And then I saw it on the other side as a coach where, you know, many parents were wonderful and had it had it in the right perspective, but there were some and their kids then in turn who were clearly using sports for some other end. It wasn't for the, you know, running, which has given me so much stability uh, mainly and just fitness. I saw the kids using it primarily as a vehicle to get into college or get into a better college. And there's a fixation on winning and championships and and by the way as a coach I wanted to win and I wanted championships too but it was it was out of proportion and it ro- I felt it robbed the sports of their value of their in the 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 genuine value of sports which is what they can do for you to become a more balanced person mm. and I felt that was being the way we had set up sports or the way they had taken on this larger than life importance, I thought was undermining it. So that's why I started writing articles about it, um, you know, looking into it. And then that kind of turned into a book. So you mentioned the parents pacing the sidelines, et cetera. And I uh, was thinking back 
fully listening, but thinking back to my own experiences. And I, I played a ton of sports growing up, but through high school and then briefly in college, played football until I figured out that slow but small was not a co good combination for football. <laughs> but a, a good advantage of football is that you can't hear the crowd. You oh. can't hear the feedback, unlike I coached my kids' soccer teams growing up. Mm -hmm. They heard every comment that the parents made from the sidelines. Yes. And so definitely a different experience. So your book is in a couple different sections. And in the first section, you provide the groundwork for how youth sport has changed over time. And one of those changes is just the sheer money involved. Mm -hmm. Will you discuss that a little bit more and maybe provide some context? Sure. I should start by saying the numbers and the data with youth sports are all over the map, in part because we don't have any kind of, um, there's no official record keeper of, you know, how much, there's no government body that's kind of keeping track. So in, in the place of that, organizations like the Aspen Institute and various research organizations that have been tasked with the job have tried to fill in. So there's, whenever you talk about participation numbers, they're like, they vary from like 20 million to 80 million. So I just wanted to add that caveat. But the number that I include in my book for the size of the industry is one of those numbers, and it's provided by Wintergreen Research, who was tasked to analyze the size of the industry. And they came up with a number in 2019 of $19 billion. And by way of contrast, the NFL is a $15 billion industry. So it's, it's huge. And it has really taken off since 2008 because that's when we had the recession, or at least the economic downturn. I can't remember if it was an official recession or not. But public funding, the limited funding for parks and those kinds of public facilities just declined even further. So industry stepped in and it has just boomed since. So now tra the travel industry, the sports tourism industry is, is big. And equipment manufacturers and media companies, they're all making a lot of money. Another, I think, a fairly reliable number Aspen Institute um, came up with is that parents spend 30 to $40 billion a year on their kids' sports. So it's gigantic. And there, there's a lot of factors that have gone into that. Part of it is the, the drying up of public money and the way private companies have stepped in. Another is... One of the driving forces here is also uh, the Walt, Walt Disney World's Wide World of Sports Complex, which opened in 1997, which was a deliberate strategy on the part of the executives to, as they put it, put heads in beds. And they recognized that they were losing the teenage population to the magic, you know, they were no longer interested in princesses and mice, and that sports would might be attractive. So they built this complex, it's enormous, it's only grown since, and you know, hosted all kinds of championship games. So after 9-11, when there was a retraction in the industry in tourism, the Wide World of Sports Complex did just fine. Parents continued to bring their kids there. So they learned that, well, this is something big. And municipalities around the country noticed that this was profitable for Disney. And so they started developing their own complexes around the country. So now we have, there are 10 times the number of sports complexes um, throughout the country, 10 times what there were when Disney started. And there are roughly 30,000 of them. So it's just become a big business. Yeah. One of my former students worked with the Dallas Sports Commission. And over the pandemic, 
we had an interview with him about mm -hmm. like how has that impacted how Dallas Sports Commission delivers the Cotton Bowl, et cetera. And he said the large sport events, as we will all recall, shut down. Yep. But the youth sport events did not. That and does not surprise that's where me. they shifted their attention. Uh -huh. Yeah. Because again, parents will pay for that. They there's a feeling that you know, their child's only going to be a U-12 potential soccer champion once, so we can't miss the opportunity. And it's been a very lucrative, lucrative business. Indeed. And so a lot of attention is on the coaches and on the parents. I think there's a third party, uh, and those are the people who uh, set up the organizations, et cetera. And I was struck on how well-researched your book was in everybody who you spoke with, including mm -hmm. Jay Coakley, who, yes. for those who may not know, is one of the foremost or sports sociologists in the world. Yep. And he said that any time the livelihood of adults depends upon kids doing certain things in sports, there's a potential for abuse. Mm -hmm. And that stuck with me so much. I shared the quote <laughs> with other people. And so maybe if you could unpack that a little bit more and the abuses the either that he alluded to or that you see as well. Right. Well, I mean, when you it's it is such a, a powerful statement because it's on its face so true that, you know, again, if you think about sports in the olden days when they weren't organized around business or parents or coaches, there was none of that, these other sort of incentives at work that could warp it. And because there's so much money, because parents invest so much money, um, you know, 30 to $40 billion is not nothing. It changes the shape of the game and how kids play. And, you know, what we've seen from that is there's pressure to specialize in, a, in one sport. And Coakley talks about, he defines it as the logic of specialization, which is in how we've gotten to the point where, you know, eight, nine-year-olds feel like they need to play one thing and one thing only. And that's because various clubs and leagues and organizations that are selling soccer or lacrosse or baseball is another big one, they need to pay their staff year-round. They need to pay their rent year-round. It's not seasonal. So in order to you know, maintain their staff. They need to, you know, it stands to reason that they would then encourage kids and families to continue to play, to play year round. Which actually works against the best interest athletically. Yes. Of the, or performance wise of the, of the child, uh, you know, in contrast to sports sampling. If you can expand on sports sampling too. Well, yeah. So, you know, the term sports specialization is one of those that just describes kids generally who tend to who pick one sport and play nine to 10 or even 12 months a year and to the exclusion of other sports. And so because of this in, um, pressure by adults, like Jay Coakley's quote suggests, kids are doing choosing a sports earlier. There's been a decline in the multi-sport athlete. And with that specialization, there's all kinds of problems that come with it, including especially injuries, burnout. Most kids quit sports. This is another one of those, uh, I should caution, is one of those numbers that is, in, is debated, but it's widely reported that most kids quit, play sports for three years and quit by 11. And the sports people who study this stuff say it's because of this push to specialize because kids get sick of it. And also because parents are spending a lot, there's research that suggests that 
the more parents spend, the less kids enjoy it, the more pressure they feel, and the less committed they are. So it, it clearly, it just warps the entire endeavor because what had been something that kids enjoyed and did for themselves and to have fun with their peers now becomes something that kids often do for adults. Or, and then dangling out there might be some other reward like college scholarship or being recruited to a college. And, that, and we know that athletes are such uh, celebrated figures that it's an attractive goal. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned parents as one of the reasons for the increased time and money spent on youth sport. And you, there are a number of examples in the book mm-hmm. that I thought, oh my goodness. Uh, what <laughs> what s- struck you as maybe the most, oh my goodness, example of parent involvement in youth oh, sport? Well, in my community, there's a very uh, competitive soccer club. And it as, as I mentioned, it starts very young with a junior pre-academy for U4s, three-year-olds, and goes up through, I'm not sure if it goes into high school or not, probably, but I'm not sure. My son didn't go that long. But they divide kids into, as many clubs do, there were tryouts and sorting kids into teams based on ability level because we don't want the slow kids to be stuck with, we don't want the fast kids stuck with the slow kids. So we put them in A, B, and C according to their ability as decided by the coaches who evaluate them. Well, one year, this one particular boy was bumped from, he had been on the A team, but he was apparently hadn't kept up. So the coaches decided in their tryout to put him in the B team, or maybe even the C team, but he was demoted. And it was the coach's responsibility to let the child know privately before it became public. But for whatever reason, the coach did not. He was traveling or slipped his mind. It was a blunder. So the child found out with everyone else that he had been you know, bumped down. And this was very upsetting. And he reported it to his parents, who were also extremely upset. And uh, as it happens, the boy's father worked at the same company as the boy's coach who made the mistake. And the boy's father had that coach transferred to South America to get him out of there. <laughs> Oh, I heard it before, and it was shocking. And, it and is I hear hard it now, to believe. It's still shocking. It, it's just- <laughs> it, it is shocking. Yes, but that it, that's a, it's very revealing about how how much it matters. How much it matters. Not only to I'm sure the child was upset, and I understand that, um, and embarrassed. But it shows you also how incredibly wrapped up in it the parents are that they would go to such me such an extreme to penalize you know a volunteer coach just trying to do his job. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, so in the second part of the book, you talk about some of the paradoxes of youth sport, including myths that maybe have mixed support with yeah. research evidence. Uh, what are some of the more common myths that you uncovered? Well, the great sports myth, which is Jay Coakley's baby, um, which is the idea that sports are all good, they're inherently valuable, and that they contribute to a person's development and community growth, basically. That there and that any deviations from that, the Lance Armstrongs or, you know, you could pick many, are bad apples. That sports are intrinsically and inherently good. And he goes on to point out that this is a myth because there really is no evidence that sports build character, for example. I looked at a lot of research on it and, you know, 40 years uh, analysis, a meta-analysis of 40 years of research on it found no evidence that playing sports builds moral reasoning or sportsmanship. So 
that's just something that we kind of, it's a paradox, I think, because parents, myself included, encourage our kids to play because we want them to get something from it beyond just, you know, learning how to kick a ball or, you know, hit a basket or whatever. And yet that fundamental, that's an assumption that is just not borne out in the research. There's also no evidence that anything they learn in, the, in sports is going to transfer to another sphere. So just because you learn it, like you learn you got to be on time for your team, doesn't mean that's going to necessarily, you'll be on time for class or discipline in one way, but not discipline in another way. There's just no evidence. That doesn't, that's not to say it doesn't happen, but there's no evidence that it does. Yes. Yeah. And so sport maybe in itself is neither good nor bad, but right. more focus on how it's delivered. Yes. And that's the reason why I, uh, even with the limited soccer training and participation, coach the girls' soccer teams because I didn't want a maniac coaching yes. them. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. And I knew I would not be a maniac. I may not be the best coach, but I wouldn't be a maniac <laughs> out there. So. Well, and I like to think of them as sports are an empty vessel, you know? And so they are what we make of them. They are what we bring to them as parents, coaches, what the community brings, what the, what's the culture of the team. All of that is what determines what a child's going to take from it. And it's not necessarily good. So to that point, one thing that I've been uh, reflecting on for a number of years, and I talk with students and anybody who has an interest in sport about it, so I'm going to mm-hmm. talk, talk to you about it. There are, if delivered properly, some mm-hmm. benefits that come of sports. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that it's limited to sports. So if we think about the benefits of name your psychological or social mm-hmm. uh, benefits, mm-hmm. would a student receive the same if they were involved with theater or ROTC or band or intramurals instead of interscholastic sports and so on? Mm-hmm. Or is there something particular about sports when it's delivered well that provides unique benefits? Well, I think that some research suggests that, that whatever connects kids to schools what makes them feel connected to adults is going to be helpful to them and to their mental health and overall life satisfaction as they get older. But I I do also think that there's something different about sports in that one thing is certainly different from the classroom is that they are so many shared qualities. So there's a shared goal. There's shared outcome. There's often, with any luck, shared effort among the kids who play. So all of that is, I mean, you can have the same thing in theater, you know, putting on a play, not necessarily in art, but that's okay. It's just, it, it does distinguish sports though. There's also something I found very bonding about sports is the shared suffering that goes with working out hard uh, with others. There's something very bonding about that. Sports are also um, emotional in ways that... Um, I can't speak for never having done a play or, you know, done some of those extracurriculars that I think I'm by no means diminishing them. I think they're valuable. I don't know if they have that same emotional quality that sports do. I mean, this is why we like to watch because there's there's an intensity to them. And for teenagers, especially whose brains are, um, you know, going through a very important period of growth in their adolescence. They tap into just what teenagers like, which is being with their peers and, um, you know, having the, the excitement of sports, the, hot, the drama of sports is very appealing to, to teenagers. So I do think there's a difference but I, uh, with sports versus the other ones, but I don't know that it's, I don't know to what extent 
It is. But it's a great question. And I think it's something we should, we should know the answer to that. And maybe there is an answer and I just don't know it. Well, I've done some research on it or some looking for research. I'm not sure it's uh, okay. out there. But yeah. a worthy, uh, worthy endeavor, I suspect. The, so one thing I think academics do is identify the problem and point it out and research it. But then it often stops there mm-hmm. instead of here's solutions. And that's one part I really enjoyed about your book mm-hmm. is, okay, here's where we are now. Here's what we can do going forward. And you provided some examples for coaches and parents and others. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those either takeaways or ways to go forward that uh, you think are most important? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as with so many large problems, it, you can just feel kind of hopeless and like, this is, uh, there's nothing I can, little old me can do about it. And I do think these problems are systemic, but I also believe that you're not powerless as a parent or a coach to make an impact in your own way, certainly within your own family. I think um, if parents can kind of change their perspective a little bit on sports, kind of learn about what the consequences are of this intense play, which I set out in the book about the injuries, the mental health stuff, the coaching environment, which can be um, unhealthy. I think parents, if they can reclaim their agency, I, I, you know, I always say sports are not mandatory. You don't have to play sports. As much as I encourage them and like them, I, they ought to be done the right way. And you know, if you feel, I think sometimes parents feel trapped and that they have to do this stuff, but you know, they actually don't. They don't have to do it. And the child will, there are other options if one team is too um, competitive or the coach is nuts or to instead of to kind of reclaim their agency, I really encourage parents to reclaim their agency and remember that this coach is for their their child. It's not for the coach or the team. It's for their child, and um, to not feel powerless about it. I think coaches too have a role, and um, I I do think it's strange that we're at this point where in classrooms and nearly every other domain that kids are in. We expect civil behavior by adults with them. And yet in the sporting arena where so many kids are involved, so many kids, millions, again, between 10 and 80 million, that we don't have higher standards for coaches' behavior. And by that, I mean the shrieking and belittling that can be, um, you know, you just go into any gym and you'll see it. Not that all coaches do it by any means. I think many, most are trying their best. But I also think coaches scream and yell because they can. And teachers don't scream and yell because they can't. And I think it would be wonderful for coaches to educate themselves about um, how to be, how to work with kids better. As I mentioned in class, um, half of coaches, school based coaches, so those who are in middle schools and high schools, have no background in education, which is not a good trend. But there's so many resources out there. If, if you want to learn about how to be positive, it's so much more effective. You know, even if you just want your kids to perform better, you're much more effective if you're positive, if you learn how to connect with kids. And so I think those, the individuals who work in these spheres or are intimate with them, whether it's coach or parents, they can do things. You know, my other section is about some of the big stuff that giant reforms that you never know. You never know if this there'll be some movement or crisis that happens that it 
trigger some kind of big change in youth sports. But one thing we could do, which other countries do, is have some kind of ministry of sport, which would like a department of similar to the Department of Education or an offshoot of Health and Human Services that baked youth sports into the administrative state so that we could regulate what's going on a little better because now it's like the Wild West out there. And also to keep track, like I mentioned, the, the problem with data. We don't, there's so much we don't know about what's going on. There would be more data collection and understanding of where the gaps are, what kids are not getting in esports, where there's like overload. So, you know, there are some big advocates of that. And I'm not sure exactly where I stand on it, but I do think it would correct some of the problems. Of course, it would invite in a whole lot of other problems. And then, look, a ministry of sport in other countries will frequently be in charge of high-performance sport and grassroots sport. Mm -hmm. And so, and the wonderful thing, I think, about the latter is that it's sport for the lifetime. Yes. Where, like you mentioned, you know, by age 12, people are, a lot of people are saying, this is not for me. Yes. And when they say it's not for me at age 12, it's rare that they pick it up as a 20-year-old or later. Right. And so it's to really embed it as part of one's life throughout one's lifespan. Right. It's so helpful. Right. And that, in my view, that ought to be the goal of youth sports to get kids um, to love to love movement and exercise, to not have it be, you know, a, an opportunity, another opportunity for embarrassment or um, humiliation, which sometimes gym class can be, or just to, to feel clumsy and out of your element and to give kids time to grow into their sports because also the way we do them now with the club you know this winnowing and separating kids into a b and c among other categories it just you know kids say well i'm not i'm a c team player i'm i might as well quit might as well give it up and they often do that before puberty which and is remarkable to me it is <laughs> remarkable well you know another thing and i, I which i find amazing that we still separate kids like this before they hit puberty. Because if you think about Tom Brady, who <clears throat> was this in the sixth round of the draft, NFL draft, he was the 199th pick. And I think if all those highly paid NFL scouts could not identify Tom Brady's otherworldly talent when he was a full grown man, what are the odds that, you know, volunteer or paid youth sports coaches spending watching your kid play for 15 minutes have any idea how that child's going to develop. They don't. Yeah, that's a great connection. And, yeah. you know, so I, I think we should absolutely do away with that. It more, does so much more harm than good. We should have more kids playing as much as possible. Mixed ability teams. We don't need to, you know, put those the faster ones and those who can dribble the ball better all together so they're not weighted down by the slow kids. It's just it's just, it's, uh, it's so unhealthy and unnecessary. Yes. Well, I hope we can diverge just for a couple questions for sure. you. From the book to maybe touch on some things, some other things you've been involved in throughout mm-hmm. your life. For example, you are part of the Positive Coach Alliance. Yes. Can you tell me more about that and why and how you got involved? Positive Coaching Alliance was, is a nonprofit organization that was started in California about 25 years ago by a man named Jim Thompson, who's a Stanford professor. And its purpose was then and is now to train coaches in shifting that paradigm away from yelling, screaming, belittling, punishing, to teach them how to use positive techniques 
to get more out of kids, to keep kids playing, and to make it a more positive experience. So uh, it started in California, and then it has set up satellite um, organizations around the country, and including the New York City chapter, which um, I was a part of. I think we started in about 2015. I'm not sure, but right around then. And the goal then and now was to train as many coaches as possible in positive coaching, also to reach um, coaches in uh, lower income areas to help them get more kids out and also to, to train to uh, work with kids in a positive way. So it's all about, you know, getting them to rethink how they work with kids. A good approach. Yes. You've also written extensively on topics outside of sports, uh, including national security and foreign relations. And I was wondering, I'm sure you've made the connection, but do you see connections uh, between the two? And have you explored those? Hmm, That's an interesting question. Well, the only connection I really see is that in um, developing countries, sports are used as a way generally to, they're used as a means for youth development. They're not so much about having, you know, professional teams and certainly not dominating in high schools. There aren't a lot of sports in uh, developing countries. So there's a lot of um, non-governmental organizations that work in in those parts of the world where there aren't school-based sports or community sports of any kind. It's a development tool, you know. But other than that, I, you know, I haven't thought about it, honestly. I don't know that there's much connection. I'll think about it now when I'll think of something when I get when we're done here and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, the development tool is an interesting one. Yeah. And you know, the UN devoted some resources mm-hmm. to sport mm-hmm. for development purposes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh and there's so many good ways and good things that come from that. Uh and it can also, you know, if be do- if done poorly, maybe not yield some of the benefits that yes. <laughs> that we may hope. Well, we like to think that, you know, if you put teams like of, you know, rivals or groups that are hostile to one another, if you mix them up in sports, that that will, you know, reduce the barriers and humanize people. And I think that's often the way we, we, we think sports can benefit these communities where there's rivalries or tension or hostilities. And I think there's been mixed success. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you've been gracious with your time. You've been a wonderful guest. Do you have any final points or takeaway messages that you'd want to leave us with? Well, yes. I, I, as a journalist, um, I recognize that I have a negativity bias. I think uh, it's something you have to be aware of. And, you know, you look at the problems and, you know, wring your hands. And, and I, I always want to remind readers or listeners that, you know, I think sports are amazing and have so much potential to be life-changing for people and especially for kids and especially now with mental health problems that so many kids are having that it's important it's important to get it right because it's just an, a, a tremendous opportunity to make a difference for to affect kids lives and that um, we should care about them for that reason and that they're in spite of all the problems they're important and we should try to uh, salvage them here here all right thank you again so much 